Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. When he was a teenager in Watsonville, California, one of his favorite Bible teachers was a young man named Tom, who worked with an organization called Christian Endeavor. Barnhouse liked to go hear Tom speak whenever he could. This was in the days before cars and highways. Travel, well, it was by train. It was also before telephones. Communication was by telegraph. One day, he got a wire from Tom, saying that he was going to be coming through Watsonville on his way to speak in another town nearby inviting Dr. Barnhouse to meet him on the train. After they had greeted each other and talked a little, Tom pulled out his Bible and settled down to a little study. Barnhouse pulled out a newspaper and started to read. A few minutes later, glancing over at Tom, he said to his friend, I sure wish I knew the Bible like you do, Tom. Tom glanced over at Barnhouse and said, Well, you'll never get to know it reading the newspaper and telling the story. Barnhouse would say that he put down his paper, pulled out his Bible, and figuratively speaking, I never put it down. Today's message is from Mark. What is required of us? I want you to turn now, if you will, to the last paragraph of the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. Mark chapter 12. The last four verses of the chapter. I'm going to read them from the translation by J.B. Phillips, and then we shall discuss this great lesson. Then Jesus sat down opposite the temple alms box, and watched the people putting their money in it. A great many rich people put in large sums. Then a poor widow came up and dropped in two little coins, worth together about a halfpenny. Jesus called his disciples to his side and said to them, Believe me, this poor widow has put in more than all the others, for they have put in what they can easily spare. But she, in her poverty, who needs so much, has given away everything, her whole living. Now they were on their way out of the temple, for no woman could come within the temple, and the very fact that there was a woman there putting money in the box showed that they had come out of the main building and were standing in the court where only men could come, and that the boxes which were out a little farther, 13 such boxes, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel and one for the 13th tribe, because most people, if you're ever on the $64,000 question and they ask you how many tribes of Israel, say 13, because there were the 12 who owned land and the 13th tribe was Levi, whose portion was the Lord. And if someone says, weren't there 12 sons of Jacob? Yes, but the 12th son was Joseph, and he was not a tribe, but had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which makes the 12th into two, which makes the 13 tribes of Israel. So there were 13 boxes there. And the disciples were with the Lord, and they were going, and we know about the portion of the building that they had reached. And suddenly the disciples said, look, as we read in chapter 13 and verse 1, Master, see, 
And they looked at stones, and the Lord said, Look at that woman, because the Lord is always more interested in people than in things. And what he saw was more than the entire temple, with its vast amount of gold, and with all of its tremendous tradition and history. Look at this poor woman. Now, why did he look at her? How did he know what was in her hand and what left her hand? How did he know that there was not even another mite concealed in her possession? Now, the Lord had just spoken of two verses before, of those, one verse before, of those who devour widows' houses. And perhaps he knew, naturally or supernaturally, that she had been such a victim. But at all events, here's a woman who puts her hand out to the box to give a gift, and the Lord God Almighty is watching. The first point I want to make is that the Lord Jesus Christ knows people's hearts and acts. The Lord Jesus Christ is constantly carrying on a judgment of the lives of men, of their ways, of their works, of their thoughts, and of their hearts. There is no thing that you do that he does not see. There is absolutely nothing that ever can be in your life that he does not know. You can have a fist tight as you put your offering in the box. He knows what you're putting in and what percentage there is of what you have. How much of it is given as a tip, as a vain show, as tradition, or how much is a true gift to him. He knows when you speak, and he is our judge as to what is behind the speaking. He knows whether the truth comes forth in love. He knows everything we're doing. And the Lord, standing with his disciples, in fact, calling them aside, he did not speak this to the whole crowd, but calling them aside, said, look at that woman and told them what he knew supernaturally of her possession, of her gift, of her income, and all that was taking place. Now, certainly this story is not applicable primarily to money. And do not think that this is a sermon on what the churches call in their promotion, a quote, stewardship, unquote. I am not given to sermons on stewardship of money. I remember what the old Scotchman said, if you feed the sheep, they'll always give you a little bit of their will. And we have 30 years of ministry behind us in this pulpit that points out that our emphasis has never been on statistics or money. Because I believe that if the heart of the people is truly prepared, that people will give. And as I say, this is not applicable primarily for money because God has said in other places that the giving of money is not the primary thing. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned, if I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Often we hear, put your offering in the envelope that has been provided for that purpose. But Christ says the envelope is love, and you put your offering in love, and that envelope, love, will sanctify and will magnify all that is therein. 
it's possible to be a hypocrite in the matter of giving. I remember in a certain church where I held a meeting, the minister came to me and said, now there's going to be one envelope in the love offering that will have a note on the outside that the person has been so richly blessed. And he said, we know the handwriting, and it's a person who could almost build another church building if she wanted to because she inherited large sums. But she will have forgotten to put in the check. The envelope will come in empty. And the passing speaker might think, well, this was an oversight. He said, but it happens every time we have a special meeting. Now, here was the case of the hypocrisy. This was the person who was giving in pretense. The Lord is talking about the other end of the scale, the person that loved and who gave everything that she had. The third point I want to make is that you cannot fulfill your spiritual obligations with money. It is not enough for you to give. You cannot do away with your missionary obligation by putting $50 even in the offering for missions. There's an obligation for you to give to go, to speak to those round about you. You are foreign missionaries in Philadelphia. I was talking recently with a Japanese about the church in Japan, and they said to me this, that the great fault in Japan is that the church that has been created, the members have no sense of obligation whatsoever to go and evangelize the rest of Japan. That is looked upon as the task for missionaries and preachers, but that the rank and file of the membership has almost no missionary burden for their fellow citizens. I think that that can be said in very large me me uh, measure of ourselves in this country. While it is true that there are certain individuals that do have such zeal, that there are multitudes of Christian church members will never witness for Christ from one year's end to the other. You can't fulfill your spiritual obligations with money. For the Lord points out in this story that, there had, that just preceding the woman there had walked up to the uh, alms boxes many rich people and that they had put in much more than she had. In fact, some of them put in very large gifts. Many that were rich cast in much. And yet the Lord said this woman gave more than all the rest. And this leads me in the fourth place to point out that the test applied by Christ was, as always, a spiritual test. The Lord is interested in your heart relationship to him. The Lord is not interested in the outward form, in the outward ceremony. He wants the heart, and you can fool everybody else, but you can never fool him. In the sight of God, the one who does not give himself has not given anything. I want to repeat that. In the sight of God, the person who has not given himself has not given anything. I once told a story here, but there's so many new students and other people in that have not heard it that it will bear repeating. There was a young man who was in this church for several years while he was at Princeton University and Theological Seminary. And when he had finished and gone on into the ministry after a couple of years abroad, 
He became pastor of a little church in Commerce, Georgia. Now, Commerce is a wide place on a macadam road way off between two central highways leading to Atlanta. And it's a town that has not changed memberships very much since the war between the states. There are so many Baptists that go to the Baptist church and so many Methodists that go to the Methodist church and so many Presbyterians that went to the Presbyterian church. The Presbyterian church was the smallest. It had a church simply because the bankers and the lawyers and the doctors of the town happened to be Presbyterians and they were able to pay for and keep up their little denominational tradition there. And they called Bob Marshburn to be their pastor. And Bob went there with a heart overflowing to do something and to get those people on fire. And he gave himself utterly to his ministry. And one Sunday he had prepared his sermon and he had such a burden, a burden upon his heart that when he went into the service and started the service, he went on and preached his sermon, pronounced the benediction, went down and began to shake hands with the people, and all of a sudden, when almost the last person had gone, the treasurer of the church, who usually came by to pick up the offering, went to him and said, you know you forgot to take the offering this morning. Well, that particular little church, if you had taken its average over years, there was $75, $75, $75 every week. And the omission of $75 in their weekly budget was $75. And Bob turned and said to them, don't worry, he said, we haven't lost anything, we'll get it next Sunday. And the man was rather dubious. And the next Sunday morning, Bob Marshburn got up in his little pulpit and told them of the omission. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to lose. We're going to lose the tips. Those that give God a tip each week would give just a tip this week. But those who made offerings, the fact that it has remained a week longer in your purse is certainly not going to change uh, what you are really going to give. And so today, if you give an offering, you give as into the hand of Christ, not into the plate, but into the hand of Christ. He said, the ushers will now come and receive your tips and offerings. Well, it shocked people. And the offering that day was not $75 nor $150, but within a dollar or two of $225, almost three times the usual. And he told me the story afterwards, and it, it of course, rang a bell in my heart because this is the nature of giving. There is never going to be a lack if the heart has been given. You think that simply because one has missed the going by of the plate that the heart's going to say, I got out of that one, now I got 50 cents more to spend for myself this week? If so, of course, you've never given anything. The test applied by Christ is a spiritual test. God is not primarily interested in the metal of your money or the paper of your money. God is interested in the heart that gives it. Then in the next place, I want you to note from this passage the lesson that God judges on a percentage basis, not on the basis of quantity. He judges on a percentage basis. That goes with brains as well. A person who may have a giant intellect of an Einstein and may be so full of it that he can put God merely down in a 1% corner is a 99% sinner, while a semi-moron 
who is totally yielded to the Lord is much more blessed of God. I remember the story. I, I think I used this sermon illustration when I was 18 and doing my first preaching. That a boy, I don't think they even had the word moron in America in those days. Moron came in along the time with radio. I don't know whether there's a connection or not, but nevertheless, uh, this is a new word in the language. But I, I can remember the story of the boy who was simple-minded, and he had a Bible, and he used to sit on the front porch in his small town and read and laugh and laugh so outrageously, so loudly, that finally somebody took his Bible away from him and gave him a geography book. And he sat there a little glumly, and all of a sudden he laughed out loud, and someone said, What on earth have you found there to make you laugh? Oh, he said, on the first page of the geography book, it says that in some places the sea is five miles deep, and the Bible says that God has cast all my sins into the depths of the sea. Well, there's no doubt of the fact that a simple mind and heart that's yielded to the Lord will find even in the statistics of geography that which can show the love of God and can reach through to the supernatural reality. Now, this woman that gave, gave a percentage. And what was her percentage? She gave 100%. Two mates. Now, this is the meaning of her whole living. It was her daily income. This was a woman who someplace had two mates a day income. If you had ever visited an oriental market, you would be astonished at some of the portions you see for sale. You can buy in India and in China and in other parts of the emerging world, you can buy as little as a sixteenth of a cent's worth of rice. A handful, cooked, not uncooked that would blow up by boiling, but cooked rice, the amount that would go on a tablespoon. And there are people that have no more than that in a day. Don't forget that you are very, very rich people. You are rich. I don't care who you are. If the poorest person in this room says, oh, doctor, I'm not rich, I say, you have shoes, don't you? Well, of course. Well, don't forget that this minute that one-third of the population of the world has no shoes. And you've eaten today, haven't you, and you expect to eat again? Oh, yes, you say. Well, don't forget that more than half of the population of this world will go to bed hungry tonight. More than half will go to bed hungry. This is the explanation, you know. People say, but why do these foolish people want to become communists? Well, you know, they've reached total bottom. They can't go any lower without starving to death. So anyway is up. Whether they swing up towards capitalism or up towards communism, it's up. And we are rich, this nation, rich beyond the bounds of imagination. And this is the reason why God counts the gifts of some people so much more than anything we get. I wonder if you remember the story I published in Eternity about something we saw in Korea this last, in uh, Formosa this last year. Lillian Dixon told us the story of a leper colony, a government leper colony that had a waiting list and couldn't take anybody else. And they had to wait till somebody left or somebody died. 
But there came a man dragging himself in, a man who was a leper. And there was a couple who had the little 10 by 10 cabin in which they lived. And they said, we'll take him in here. But what is he going to eat? Well, we'll share ours with him. And what was given to them was a government ration to a leper. And the two were going to make it do for three. And that was all they had. But it was in the name of the Lord Jesus. Mrs. Barnhouse and I went out to, with one of the missionaries to visit a, a native aboriginal village. And we stopped by a place where we were going to have our lunch at a little shed shack overlooking a waterfall. And as we came up, there was a Chinese who approached our missionary and welcomed him and said that he himself was a Christian. We went in to eat. And when we had finished our dinner, we discovered that this foreman on the railroad gang had paid for it. And when we expostulated and wished to pay ourselves, he told the missionary, it's the first time in my life I have been able to uh, obey the Bible verse to exercise hospitality for the saints. Now what he had given, the cost of our dinner for the group of us that he had paid for was certainly two days wages. Twice his living for that day. And he probably went low himself for a week or two to make up for that which he had done. This quality of giving, God sees and God knows. And only heaven will reveal the wonders of how much has been given by the people who had practically nothing and how little was given by all of us who have all had so much. Don't, and above all, let me interject here. Don't you ever dare to say, well, I'll give my might. If someone is taking up an offering for some special service, don't you say, well, it isn't much, it's just the widow's might. Don't you dare talk like that. The widow's might was half a day's wages, and the widow's might, which she gave, was a whole day's wages. Then in the next place, not only does God judge on a percentage basis, but I want to note the emptiness of man's standards of judgment. How empty are man's standards of judgment? An English preacher in the last century wrote this, there may be more spiritual nobleness, more of the morally sublime in some obscure hidden life than hardly anyone, that hardly anyone notices than in many of the conspicuous acts of distinguished persons which are recorded in the pages of history. Our Lord reminds us that obscurity is a condition sometimes the necessary condition of much of the most self-denying work that is done in the world. You go down the streets of great cities and you'll see monuments to men who have built hospitals, and yet there is no monument to the man that Robert Burns wrote about in the Cutter's Saturday Night, who after his meal of porridge lifted up his heart in thankfulness to God, who had given his children who had given everything that he had to the Lord. And all this brings us to the fact that there are very few of our Lord's sayings that are so overlooked as 
this story. There are thousands of people who remember all of Christ's doctrinal utterances. And yet they contrive to forget this little incident in his earthly ministry. And the proof of this is to be seen in the meager and sparing contributions which are yearly made by Christ's church to do good in the world. The proof of this lies in the miserably small incomes of all the missionary societies in proportion to the wealth of the churches. All of the missionaries in the whole world the whole of the Church of Christ amount to less than the crews of six aircraft carriers. The entire Church of Christ and everything they're trying to do to, to save the world and to take the gospel to them, while the amount of money that is spent upon all of our churches, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, carpets, pews, buildings, janitor cleaning, organs, music, pastors, suppers, everything. If you take the entire budget that is spent in the United States on, quote, religion, unquote, it is only one-fourth of the amount that is spent on tobacco or one-fourth of the amount that is spent on cosmetics, beauty shops, and lipsticks. Only one-ninth of the amount that is spent in liquors and beers. Only one-fourteenth of the amount that it is estimated is spent in gambling in the United States in the course of a year. The other day I saw the statistics that less than 2% of the national income goes to all works of charities, half of that to hospitals, cancer research societies, and so on, and the other half, a little less than 1% of the national income goes to all religion. And of that maybe less than half, oh, much less than half, gets to the reality of taking out the gospel. It seems to me that in this text that we have before us, the Lord has laid the foundation for a tremendous judgment upon his people that is to be given at the last day. Well, what's the conclusion? Whenever I'm preparing a sermon, I'm more conscious of the conclusion, perhaps, than any other part of the service. I may be able to hold your attention and tell you stories that will keep your interest down to this moment, but of what use is it all if I pronounce the benediction and you go out and say, well, where are we going to have lunch? Where should we go and eat too much? What is to be the conclusion of this? Well, first of all, let us remember that the whole thrust of the New Testament tells us that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that no flesh might glory in his presence. God is not going to allow such boasting to stand. And therefore you and I must go out and face all of life, not only financial life, 
but every other phase of life with this thought, Lord, what percentage is this? What percentage? And do you have the attitude? Now shut yourself out of the rest of my business. I gave you from 11 to 12.30 an hour and a half Sunday morning. Let me run my life. I'll decide what manner of low living I shall do on Saturday night. And you get your tip on Sunday morning. Oh, how God is going to judge for this. How God is going to judge if you have organized your life so that this little percentage is done for him and all of the rest is done for self. Where is your love that bathes all of your acts? Where is that which comes deep in your life to affect your attitude towards your fellow students, your neighbor, the apartment house dweller, and all the rest? How much, what percentage of you is the Lord getting? If we do not come to this conclusion and if we do not let him answer it, then everything I have said is utterly worthless. Shall we bow in prayer? Now, our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt take this message to our heart. We have such need of thee. We're so prone to go our way, to do that which pleases us, to give thee the shreds and leftovers of life, and all to our own ultimate defeat, because spiritual life is as much on scientific principles as any other phase of life. Lord, help men to see that no ship can be navigated in the seas, no building built, no plane flown, no commerce employed that is not according to certain laws. And that in all spiritual life, the same thing is applicable, that there are the divine laws, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and that love is that which thou art seeking to build within us, and the death of self, that it may be crucified with Christ. In the light of this, O Lord, bring us to the serious place of decision that in the will there may be the surrender to thyself. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.